welcome to episode two, in which the real Bacani and I discuss regulatory harmonization. Hey all, today I'm here with Bakani Nube, the MyCow Travel Award recipient for 2019. You can find on Twitter at TheRealBakani. Today we're just going to be chatting about pharmaceuticals and Africa and I think growth and development across the continent. Uh, we've actually tried to get this episode off the ground a few times now, only to be blocked by like failures in the energy grid of Southern Africa. So. I think that's maybe a pretty salient point on which to begin, Bakani. Um, I don't know if you if that's had any sort of tangible effect on the work that you're trying to do. Um, that maybe you're just coming up to these roadblocks that are present purely sort of because of the state of things. Like, hey, you know, we're trying to do. I don't know trying to deliver a certain thing and we just can't because you know the power is going to be off for like half the day and it's going to happen you know maybe a couple times this week i don't know with uh, pharmaceuticals maybe you've got like certain medicines that require refrigeration or something like has this been something that you've sort of come up against as like you you feel like your work could be going a lot further if you weren't hitting these issues. All right. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me today. Um, so like you said, my name is Bakani, and what I'm actually doing in the pharmaceutical space has mostly got to do with um, pharmaceutical regulations and policy. Um, so as you can imagine, that's mostly um, reviewing and writing up a lot of documents. Um, so really in terms of what's currently happening, especially with the power situation, that doesn't really um, affect me in terms of, you know, actual access to medicines and dispensing medicines to patients because most of my work is just centered around documents on the cloud, documents on my laptop, and I generally just need an internet connection and um, electricity. But still, even with those two things, um, it is a challenge because sometimes you just have unexpected power cuts, um, which means the Wi-Fi is down, um, and then I can't do what I need to do when I need to get it done. Like on Friday, for instance, I was supposed to have a meeting in the morning um, with some data aggregators, um, and then the power was out. Actually, you know, we had power, but then the internet was out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so obviously we couldn't then connect. Um, I was just going in and out of the meeting. Um, and the mobile data services providers are also quite useless here, so. Right. Yeah. Mm. So the policy that you're, like sort of, that field that you're working with, are you doing it on a national scale? Like what sort of level of administration does this policy end up affecting? Okay, um, so what I'm doing right now, um, which takes up most of my time, is doing research. So this is part of my master's of pharmacy. Um, so in second year now, my final year of master's in pharmacy program. Um, so 
the research that I'm doing is centered around the implementation of the African Union model law on medical products regulation and the establishment of the African Medicines Agency. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll just break it down into what it actually is. So the first part, which is looking at the African Union model law on medical products regulation. Um, so just to take you back to how drug regulation actually works. So each country in Africa has got a national medicines regulatory authority, right? And this would be a body um, or a unit that is either independent or it's housed within a ministry of health. Um, and then they're going to be responsible for regulating the medical products um, that are on the market in that country. So Africa's got 55 countries, 54 of them have um, such such a regulatory authority. The only country without one would be Sahrawi Republic. Um, Western Sahara, right? And, like and, by another name. I think yeah. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so then. All these countries work independently. They used to work independently and they'd have their regulatory authority or regulatory unit um, regulating the medicines, medical products that are on the market in that country. Obviously, this creates challenges, right? Because if everyone is working independently, it means that some of the work is not being done efficiently. Um, there's duplication of effort. Um, it also just requires huge amounts of, of infrastructure and also um, capacity in terms of the stuff that you have. So it makes more sense for countries to work together um, to regulate some products, right? So then they came together, and I think about 2009, uh, and they started regulating medical products using the regional economic communities that are in Africa. So for instance, that would be your SADC, which is a Southern African development community. It's got about 16 countries in Southern Africa, and they come together and regulate certain products together. You also have the same thing in West Africa, Central Africa, um, East Africa as well, and also at the Horn of Africa in the ICAD region. Um, so that that's they came up. The African Union then also came up with a policy, right, uh, which is this model law, which was being and still is being used um, by countries to actually either take up the model law in full so they can use it to regulate products in their region or either take up certain parts of the model law use it to update an already existing law in the country. So I'm just looking at the implementation and the domestication of that law in the country, seeing what sort of enabling factors exist in terms of taking up this new law. What are the challenges that are, that the countries are facing with domesticating this law? Um, and what sort of benefits come about after you domesticate the law? Have there been any um, improvement in terms of, of regulation and getting medicines to patients quicker? And then the second part is the African Medicines Agency. So like I said, um, 2009, countries started regulating medical products in regional blocks. And now these regional blocks want to come together and make one continental regulatory authority, which is going to be called the African Medicines Agency, like you do have in Europe. They've got the European Medicines Agency. So the African Medicines Agency was supposed to be um, set up, um, or rather supposed to be launched in 2018. That then didn't happen um, and it still hasn't hasn't been launched and how it's supposed to get established is through a treaty. So this treaty needs 15 um, countries to ratify it and once the 15 countries have ratified it, the agency can actually begin operating. So I'm looking at, um, again, what are the enabling factors for countries to sign and ratify the treaty, uh, the challenges that they're facing. What do, you, what do the countries see 
what do the countries see as their role um, in, in that continental agency and how is it actually going to operate here? I mean, I it, this... it really is on a regional and continental transfer question, yeah. Cool. That is, I find this very fascinating because something that I've been, uh, I don't know if I'd be, I, I would, you know, I'm not involved in it. I don't have any hand in it, but I have been at least following pretty hopefully is this real, what looks like some real forward steps in terms of progress in the African Union. And, you know, I, since I was a kid, I'd known about the existence of the European Union, and it seemed like they were doing a whole bunch of stuff. And it must have been when I was relatively late into my teens that I became aware of the African Union, which is weird, of course, right? Like having grown up theoretically (laughs) inside it, it was something that I just wasn't cognizant that it was there. And I think there are many other people who don't even know that it's there. Um, but and it feels like it was sort of just sort of in this limbo as if as if it was set up in order to mimic the EU and then nothing had got started. But recently within, I don't know, I, I want to say five years, but, you know, probably stuff's been brewing before that. It, it really feels like some major strides are happening, right? I know you've got stuff like like talking about these big blocks, I know the West African currency block uh, was going to make some moves. Like right now they're all using the the West African franc, which I think is still pegged to the French euro. Um, And and France mandates that. But I I believe they were going to like move their entire currency block to their own, which is a number of states working together. And in East Africa, you've got the, like there's this, federalization movement to federalize a bunch of east african countries um into you know like one federal entity um and they might have their own currency block and um and i I think it's like driven from the from these blocks um but the the au itself has had some you know like the au passport should be rolling out soon so i think you know nationals of different countries relatively soon and i don't know what this date is i heard something like oh 2021 but who knows what's happening with with current you know situations um but that you know when nationals renew their passport they could get like an au version of it which would allow freedom of movement between all the countries which is fantastic right like this is one of the best things about having a european passport where you can just easily move between countries and that will allow labor and people to move around and share resources and um and sort of just what seems to be a lot of efforts into getting the continent connected and making it easier and better for people within africa to move around it and and do business and um you know like keep people keep the the wealth and the talent inside africa and make it easier to do things like i know the there was a a tariff law that that kicked in recently or is is in the process of kicking in where i, b- I believe the tariffs um trade tariffs for inter- internal trade between different african countries is, is dropping like almost 90 percent in some cases um which and like that sort of focus of 
actual interesting or like tangible advancements in this like cohesive African project that the AU is ostensibly set up to to go about doing. Um, it seems very hopeful, and like I I've been looking forward to it, and just keeping up sort of lightly with different developments, and I find it very fascinating, and I think you know stuff like freedom of movement is a pretty big ticket issue that makes some news but i think it's also really the like it's the smaller functions and committees that will do a lot of other things like pharmacy medicine right like getting one central system that can help provide medicine and mandate what is good and bad and important you know that type of that can really help countries that might be you know, struggling to do things on their own. Um, I don't know if you've got had an experience with this, but uh, I know that Cyril Ramaphosa, who's the current president of the AU and, and also the president of South Africa, um, wanted to set up something for the COVID vaccines that, you know, they, the AU would, would get a whole bunch and then hand that out to different member states and the member states could worry about paying the AU back rather than like, I don't know, Chad trying to like negotiate with fucking AstraZeneca or some producer of vaccines on their own, right? Where they just have this like weird power imbalance. Um, and they're, you know, AstraZeneca is like, oh, I can make more profit selling this to Germany or, or whatever. Um, and And so just being able to get like like lift each other up um i don't know if you've had like some experience with that like I, maybe the covid thing is outside of your uh, yeah um yeah like what's happening with the pharmaceutical association that you're sort of like working with but i think it's maybe in a similar vein right that's like there's at least sort of the African, the union itself is sort of getting us as a central point for a certain type of medicine and then delegating that out to the member states. Yeah, a lot of work that's been happening with the AU and like it's really pleasing to see um, them, you know, taking up this political leadership to just govern a lot of things in Africa centrally. Um, it's actually been around for a very long time. I'm actually not sure if, if what came first between European Union and the African Union. Before it was the African Union, it was um, for African unity, like back in the 60s and 50s. Um, and that's where it actually started because these African countries came together to try and um, overcome, you know, colonial, colonial rule. Um, so that's where it really started from. Um, and then as countries gained independence uh, one by one, they then restructured i think around 1999 and 2002 into what is now the african union um and so they do a lot of different things from from um security to health to to finance like you mentioned um and and the and also like even like movement of personnel uh, and persons um and so now with with what you're mentioning with the covid um, yes, I, I, I don't work in that space, but then I was following that, um, you know, the way that everything was progressing um, and the task force that was actually set up. So 
how COVID um, vaccines actually reaching Africa, I think, is one of three ways. So first, the country can decide to buy them directly from uh, a vaccine manufacturer. And then the second way was through um, AVAT, which is the, um, I can't remember what it stands for, but then that would be the task team that was set up by President Ramaphosa and the other folks at the, at the, at the AU. Um, and then the other way to get the vaccine was through, obviously there's, there's also donations that are happening between countries, you know, like um, Israel, the UAE, India, Russia, China, with also donating vaccines to African countries, um, you know, as part of diplomatic relations. And also there's a facility called COVAX, and a, a COVAX is actually governed by, is, is actually not governed, but um, coordinated by the World Health Organization, Gavi, um, and I think CEPI. Um, and so they're also working to to provide vaccines really the entire world um, and and Africa obviously falls within within that space and and I think for the COVAX facility the plan was to get 20% um, to supply Africa or 20% of its vaccine so yeah that, that's also one of the other key things that the AU has been doing in the vaccine yeah. space and trying to pull procurement yeah I think that's, I mean, I saw some graph or like illustration sometime last year that was sort of estimating when the vaccine would reach different places around the world. And I don't want, I don't know what they classified as reach, right? Like, I don't know if they meant get to some threshold or like just get there for the first time, which seems a bit absurd or, you know, like be fully immune. I don't know what they're their prerequisite was for this graph but um you know there were different countries like the u.s which had something in like you know end of 2020 or like start of 2021 um and there were just predictions for like certain certain parts of africa that were like you know 2023 or like early 2024 and i was like i don't know it broke my heart when i saw that i was just like without you know, without some sort of rallying voice that like certain places can just be left behind. And so having some sort of strong central um, organization or or policy, I think is, is very integral to just uh, sort of bargaining with the world, right? Um, I mean, that's sort of why the EU is set up, right? Is like, as a block, it is, it is very powerful. Like as an individual country, I don't know, Luxembourg is is not going to get anywhere, but as part of a block, um, it's got it's got a lot of sway, uh, and so like yeah. just the African pro like the African Union as a project is something that I've been fascinated. So if you can, yeah, like I would love to hear more about your experiences just in I don't know, like in setting up policy, like um, what your sort of feel like. What do you feel in the water, basically, of like, um, how is this, how are these endeavors like being perceived? Is it like a hopeful cause or, I don't know, is there just like, are these things moving along with quite a lot of like efficiency? Um, what do you sort of see in this future? Okay, um, so I can only really speak to, to medicines regulatory harmonization because that's what I, I used to about in terms of what the AU does. Um, so that is being done 
through um, what is called AUDA NEPAD, which is the African Union Development Agency. Um, and NEPAD stands for New Partnership for Africa's Development. Yeah. So the African Union Development Agency is basically the agency that is responsible for implementing African Union projects and initiatives. So one of the projects and initiatives under under uh, mandate of the African Union Development Agency is what is called the African Medicines Regulatory Harmonization Initiative, AMRH. So this, this was set up um, in 2009, like I said. It's been running quite well for um, it's now over 10 years. Yeah. Um, so during that time, they, they initially started out with the East African community as the, um, the region that would actually uh, pilot um, this harmonization initiative. So they started off in East Africa and had the East African countries come together and regulate medicines together. And at the time, they had really been looking at generic medical products, which is your small molecules that are off patent that you know any pharmaceutical manufacturer can really just make. Um, so they did that when they spread it out across Africa. Um, and and right now, each regional block in Africa has some form of joint regulatory capacity. And there's a lot of work that's really gone into into medicines regulation on the continent. Um, in that 10-year space. Um, there's a lot of strong leadership that's come out of it. There's a lot of infrastructure that's been set up. There's a lot of funding that's been received, um, both internally and even from external stakeholders and partners, such as the World Health Organization. Um, your Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also came through and gave money. There was the UK, um, DFID, um, yeah, and a couple of other stakeholders as well. So it, it really has been going really well, and it's encouraging to see. And it's not really one of those things that is just, you know, mentioned and then forgotten about. Um, constantly, there's, there's new things that are coming out, out of that. And now this AMRH initiative is trying to be transitioned into the African Medicines Agency, which a lot of people are very um, keen on looking forward to because a lot of a lot of groundwork and a, a solid foundations come into into uh, joint regulation on the continent and i think that um, definitely going to get set up probably in the next six months so i hear from from people who are uh, more closely in that space and even beyond the regulation there was also the africa cdc which was um which is now being headed up um, by Dr. John Kengerson. Um, and they've also been doing a lot of work, especially right now with the pandemic. So yeah, all these all these initiatives are doing really well, um, which is which is really refreshing to see because most of the time, you know, some of the things um, in Africa are very you know political, and there's a lot of corruption and things that happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's I think always the one of the big blockades is that you still have to fight against quite a lot of corruption. And um, as for political pushback, maybe not just political pushback, general pushback, have you felt any of that? Like, are there, are there sort of certain groups or f factions that are actually a Opposing this, and if there are, like, what are their reasons for opposing it? Beside maybe autonomy, I haven't. Yeah, so um, in terms of autonomy, that's not going to be a problem because the way that the African Union is actually set up um, is that it doesn't have any 
any uh, sweeping powers in terms of making decisions, right? Each country that is a member state of the African Union still has its own decision-making, you know, decision-making role, responsibility. So, you know, each country still has its own sovereignty. So there's no reason for any country to be worried about losing sovereignty or anything of that sort. Um, So there hasn't been any pushback in terms of, 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 of... drug regulation and medical products. And I think because this is a health health um, initiative, right? Most of the time any health policies get get higher priority on agendas of governance. And most people, really the majority of people can agree that health is something that's important. So they it, it's 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 hardly ever one of the things that are contested. It's not the same as as you know um financing or like having a joint financial body or something that where with most people would then be a bit more hesitant to actually join into that. But like with, with this I haven't seen any pushback. The the challenges there is that obviously these are processes that that um, take time. They're very bureaucratic. Uh, if you look at the setting up of the African Medicines Agency by a treaty, you need fifteen countries to sign and ratify. And if you look at the process of ratification of a treaty, right, it takes time because at the national level, um, the treaty needs to to get onto the agenda of the government and go to parliament and. Parliament, parliamentary processes generally take time as well. So um, it's not really pushback, but rather that these are still processes when you deal with policies. Yeah. Right. These... I know for 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 example, um, sorry. Okay. I know for example, like the the other initiative that was being set up was the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, mm-hmm. which basically wants to make you know the African continent one big uh, market. Um, so that's that has had a, a couple, actually not a couple, but a lot of countries actually getting on board. But initially, your big economies like Nigeria were hesitant to join that because they felt that if you make one big market, they might lose out economically. Um, so that's one example of, of a sector that, that might have pushback. Um, right. If you look at, at financial and economic things and having one big market, but with healthcare, um, the, the goal with healthcare is the same for, for all countries. Everyone just wants to make sure that their citizens have access to to solid health systems and also good quality, short, safe and efficacious medical products. Yeah, no, I, I, th- th- that makes a lot of sense, yeah. I guess. Um yeah, I I think I heard that with Nigeria. I I don't know what the, exactly they turned around for. Um, yeah, but yeah, I I worry that is a an issue where like a certain country would just. I know Morocco has often been the one that like stands up, but maybe that's with the issue of like you know the Sahara Republic. Um, but anyway, I I think that's. Um, a different issue maybe with with the, the ratification um of this treaty you said there's 15 countries are, are those 15 specific countries that have you know like some particular council at the moment like for example on the un it's like a security council right and like there are a certain number of nations which have some sort of preference for some time period um unless they're permanent members or is it like any 15 of the 55 need to ratify it? Because that's, you know, 15 or 55 is not particularly a high number. You're just waiting for that process. Like, what what sets, like, 
why 15 and are, are there a particular 15 that need to do it? Okay. Um, so um, the number 15, I'm actually not um, sure exactly where that comes from, but I think it's got to do with one of the African Union um, governance goals or something like that in terms of, you know, if you need a treaty to get ratified, this is the set number that you need. Um, mm. But I'm actually not sure what exactly, how, how they got to that number. Um, so then I know that it's 15 uh, for that treaty to come into force. Um, and it can be any 15 countries that are a member states. So it's just any 15 out of the 55. Right now, eight countries have ratified. Oh. So they're waiting, they're pushing to get seven more, um, and then it will be up and running. I'm sure by the time they get to 13 countries, um, they should send out a, a call to to the, to, the, to the countries that have already ratified to in bids to host the agency. Um, I to put it in what? A bid to host the agency. Ah, is, is the yeah. agency still going to be centered in a certain city or, or what have you? Yeah, it has to be um, set up in a certain city or country, and it has to be one of the countries that have signed the that have signed and ratified the treaty. Right. Yeah. So, for instance, if for instance, um, I know, I know, like um, Ghana, for instance, would have signed and ratified. I think by now. Um, so they can put in a bid to host and the agency yeah. set up in Ghana. Uh, but a country that hasn't signed or ratified cannot actually host, cannot host, nice. yeah. Isn't Ghana hosting, uh, it's, it's something to do with economics. Um, I don't know if it's part of the free trade agreement thing, but... Yeah, I, th yeah, I they're, think, they're, they're they, one of I think it's the free hosting. trade, yeah. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. And then I know, like, the, you know, you've got... Uh, Addis Ababa, which is hosting like the the right? The headquarters. The headquarters, right? Durban has something as well. Yeah, for the something in Dar es Salaam. Um, uh, speaking of countries that are, like have some sort of central role, um, I, I believe you went there not so long back to Rwanda, right? For a conference, if I'm correct in saying this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really lo sort of love to see the, the position Rwanda has taken um, as sort of like this meeting place, right? Like it's, it isn't a perfect location. Like it is like a slap bang, centralized for everyone. Um, and everything yeah. I've heard about, uh, about, um, is it Kigali, the capital? Um, yes, Kigali. Um, like everything I've heard from Kigali, but people who've been to Kigali, it's just like how clean it is, um, how nice it is, and I don't know. It's really interesting to see it sort of maybe position itself as like a a meeting place, right? Um, and I really, I really like that idea as it like it's sort of embracing that type of role. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I've I've been there like three times now to Kigali. It's really a lovely place, um, and everything is very organized, super clean, super safe. Um, and I, I and also they also did strategically about you know um, putting themselves as, as the place to meet up for conferences and exhibitions and that sort of stuff. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised actually if Rwanda puts in. Because they have signed, and I think they have ratified as well. I wouldn't be surprised if they put in a bid to host 
Um, they were the first country to sign, actually. I wouldn't be surprised if they put in a bid to host the African Medicines Agency, and yeah, they they probably would do a job of, of it. Are there actually um, like are there different incentives for these countries to host? Right, like I'm assuming this is relatively prestigious in its own right. Um, are, yeah. Right. So, like, is it actually something that? they're almost competing for uh, to be able to be the one to host? Or, like, do you see certain countries, like, really sort of, like you said, Rwanda, you wouldn't be surprised. Um, do you sort of see certain places that are, like, likely to want to have that position? Yeah, um, I think, I think. I mean, apart from just, you know, being the center of where the Africa's medicines regulation takes place. And it's obviously good for them as well, uh, because then they get new infrastructure in the country. Um, I think the, the budget that I, not a budget as such, but like the projections that I saw that there would be about a hundred million um, US dollars that would be put towards the agents in the first five years for it to operate. Um, so that obviously comes with, with infrastructure coming into the country. Um, you also get to boost your own, your own local um, industry and also get new skills and technical know-how coming to your country. So um, that cascades as well to actual pharmaceutical production because pharmaceutical production goes hand in the medicine regulation. Right. So those are some of the incentives that are there. Um, but in terms of, of countries that can actually host you also need to look at other things such as the economy of the country and also the, the political setup of the country and the um, and just just general safety and that sort of thing. So that might um, and stability. So that might actually exclude certain countries um, from putting forward a bid. So for instance, uh, I'm not confident that my home country <laughs> would would do that because like our, our economy is a mess right now, even though our drug regulations are really, really good and we're one of the countries that um, that that spearhead a lot of, of initiatives in Southern Africa. Yeah, so there are certain countries that you look at and they might be good to host, but at the same time, there's other countries, even though they have good regulations and they've got good regulatory authorities in place that contribute a lot for the region, um, they might not necessarily make good um, hosting place for the agency as a whole. Right. Is there any other factors that um, sort of uh, that you feel like make a difference? Um Right, like if it was more about production, right? I, I know it's not it's about policy, but like if it was about production, you might say like, oh, like uh, being a seaport would be helpful for like getting large scale like imports in, right? Are there other factors besides sort of stability and economy that go into making an optimal decision as to where to host it? Or is it sort of enough that they are stable and have... And have like a decent economy to back it up. Um, I think also the 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 drug regulations in that country itself have got to be good. So like the country's regulatory expertise have got to be good. Um, they've got to be at a certain you know decent level because obviously the agency is going to recruit 
experts from other countries, um, you know, to to move and work at at that place. But as a, as a starting point, I think that country also has to have good regulations and a good regulatory body in place. Um, but yeah, so so also we have to take into consideration that right now with the African um, Continental Free Trade Area Agreement that is actually really in effect, it means that certain things like drug production don't necessarily have to be in the same place as um, the drug regulatory authority. So if you have the regulatory authority, for instance, being in Rwanda, uh, you could have drug production happening more in Nigeria and Ethiopia and South Africa. Um, and those medicines should still be able to move around quite easily because of the one big market that has been set up by a free trade area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um for um man, I, I had that thought just evaporate from my head as I thought it. Um Yeah, that's man, that's super fascinating. Um How do you this this the policy, right? You mentioned a little bit further back about like autonomy and sovereignty of, of like countries and and I get that um, but when you when it comes to sort of like the the regulatory authorities how would that affect different member states like once it goes through are all member states sort of required then to follow the guidelines or is it like a framework to work like are there things that a country would no longer be able to do that they might be doing now or might want to be doing now maybe it would not be good for their people but you know are doing um or it or is it like that they could sort of take things a la carte off the off the policy or would it be just like you know once this goes in you now have to adhere by the to these guidelines and uh and that's sort of that okay you're speaking about the establishment of the African Medicines Agency, right? Yes, and like once okay. once it sort of sets up and regulations are in yeah. place, they're they're continentally in place, yeah. right? But uh, what's the bearing of that on the individual countries? Yeah, yeah so you know, okay. you, you're talking about sort of the different countries that have their own regulatory authorities now, and like certain ones are good and certain ones are bad. And at some point, once the African regu- like the um, AMA was it? Yeah, African yeah. Medicines Agency. Yeah. yeah. Once once it's set up, um, and certain policies or regulations go into into place, um, would that be something that like, as a member state, you have to follow these guidelines? You have to adhere to this thing, um, or is it more that they could, I don't know, somehow, like, it, there's a set of guidelines and they can they can choose from those what. They're, they're like how they want to work but are still allowed to on their own make a decision as if like no we want to take it this way because like we feel like that would suit our distribution or our population in, in some way better or would they sort of be like locked into a certain guideline okay yeah right? so that makes sense. um so all yeah all, all the countries are going to still have sovereignty and 
the African Medicines Agency is not going to replace any continental, sorry, any national regulatory authorities or any regional regulatory authorities that have been set up. So, for instance, the East African Community is planning on setting up um, an East African Community Medicine um, Agency or authority. Um, so, you, a country can still keep its own regulatory authority in place and still regulate medical products. Um, and, and still be a, a member of the African Medicines Agency Treaty. Um, so the, 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 those two things will coexist. So for instance, if you look at, uh, okay, think of sickle cell anemia, right? So sickle cell anemia is a condition that predominantly affects people in West Africa. It's not a problem down here in Southern Africa. So, if a company, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, makes medicines for sickle cell anemia, they would want to go and get that medicine registered in West Africa, right? Because that's where the market is and that's where the people need that medicine. Um, there's no there's no point in them going to go and get that medicine registered at a continental level um, when they can just go directly to the to the countries that the select countries that have that condition. Um, that needs to be addressed. So the, in that case, you see there is a clear need for you to have um, your own regulatory authority as a country and decide um, to either take that medical product onto your market or not. Uh, another example is malaria. Malaria is probably only uh, prevalent in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, people who have, um, and typically areas that have got sickle cell anemia, uh, being prevalent in that area will not suffer from malaria. So, you know, if, if someone has got a malaria vaccine or malaria medicine, they want to go and get them registered in countries that have malaria. Um, and also in that, you see, in that instance, each country will still have to have its own regulatory authority um, that can then decide and review on the doses for that product to get marketed in that country. And then you'll have situations like right now, the COVID-19 pandemic, where this is something that's affecting everyone in Africa, right? So you, in that case, the, the continental body can then now step in and be responsible for regulating that product and making sure that they check it for safety, quality, efficacy, and also give it marketing authorization. And then that decision for marketing authorization can then be adopted uh, by the countries that want in Africa, which is probably going to be everyone, um, if they agree that that's the way to go. The, the regulatory authorities in the countries will still exist. At the regional level, they'll still exist, and there'll now be a continental body as well mm, okay. to complement all of that. Yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That, that's kind of where I was sort of imagining, like, you know, taking something, like, the process is a bit... Uh, uh, what's the word like opaque to me because I ha I really don't have a lot of experience with it but um, yeah I I understand that they can sort of like so I'm saying like take it you know sort of choose a regulation to adopt that and in this case you'd be like okay we this is a continental thing and then your like your market availability can now be a country can choose to adopt that particular thing so that yeah uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I also can see like how you wouldn't really get pushed back because you could just choose what you decided to do. So, um, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. In terms of like um, 
problems though like what do you see is is sort of like the biggest the biggest problems and hurdles to like the sort of regulatory harmonization happening right now and and let me add to that what are some what are some of the things that you think you know within the coming couple years like tangibly will be solved okay um so i think the the hurdles for regulatory harmonization and the content level are going to be the same as the ones that we've already witnessed at the regional level um so the first one that's always going to be there is going to be financial resources um 100 million us dollars is, is no small amount of money um so financial resources technical uh, know-how the the products medical products are and the science of of you know pharmaceuticals is advancing uh, pretty much all the time you know we've gone from having vaccines that were made using egg-based um, reactors i think they're called and now you have this new uh, mrna um, um, science that's being used by you know pfizer and those companies for for the covid19 vaccine so the, the, the technical expertise and capabilities to actually regulate some of these things is a challenge because already uh, most of the regulatory authorities have got the capability and technical expertise to regulate generic medical products because that's what they've been dealing with for a long time. And so some of these more complicated and complex uh, products might prove challenging to actually regulate on the African continent, what actually happens is you sometimes get um, reliance pathways, which is basically uh, a country does not actually review the full product dossier for for products. What they'll actually do is is um, rely on the decision that's already been made by another agency. So, for instance, um, so for instance, Zimbabwe could say that if this product has been registered by the the US FDA, for example, right? You know that the US FDA has already reviewed it um, and they've approved it. So you can then decide to also put that product on your market. So that sort of reliance um, pathway is used in some instances. And that's how you overcome the hurdle of, of, of lack of competency to, to regulate products or like, you know, technical expertise and that sort of thing. But it will certainly pop up again um, once the, the continental body is set up because they might get applications for complex products and there will need to be um, experts who are coming from somewhere from, from African countries to come and review this. So technical capacity needs to get boosted and competency. Um, and also um, with regulatory harmonization, there is an issue of of um, individual financing. So apart from you getting funding to set up the agency or set up some form of harmonization, you also need money to keep, um, obviously keep the lights on <laughs> after you yeah. set up the, the initiative. And that comes from, um, from mostly from licensing fees and like application fees. So pharmaceutical company will come to a regulatory authority and pay the authority an application fee for it to review its product application and also approve um, that product. So it's fine if you have, you know, Zimbabwe over here on its own and a company comes through and they want to get a product registered in Zimbabwe, the regulatory authority in Zimbabwe will review that product dossier. They'll receive the application fee 
um, for, for that application. And also they'll get, um, um, what do you call it? There's a fee that they pay each year to have that product on the market, right? right? So that's income that's coming into the regulatory authority. So once you now have a harmonized approach, who is going to take the money? So for instance, mm. in Southern Africa, you've got 16, you've got 16 countries. If they come together to review this one product, um, there is now issues to do with, okay, so now we've all reviewed the product together. Who's getting the application fee and, and the money to actually um, keep the product on the market, uh, the, the, the retention fee and the annual fee that the company has to pay. Um, and so what's currently happening is that in some instances with the regular harmonization initiatives, it might cut down on the time spent to review the product. So for instance, it might take two years to review a product application. Um, and so now these joint harmonization initiatives can get it down to about eight months. Um, and then that company will be expected to pay each individual country uh, um, and, and put in an application in each individual country. It just hasn't been an effective way to get around that um, issue of how do you actually bill companies uh, due to license products. You know? So that's another issue in terms of joint harmonization. Um, yeah, I think those are the main ones. It's got to do with finance. It's got to do with technical skills and competency. Um, right. Yeah. And it's also, it's also got to do with infrastructure as well, because even though you're, you're jointly harmonizing, doing joint harmonization activities, the, com- the, the countries that are coming together to take part in that joint harmonization adventure are at different levels of development. They've got different economies. They've got different infrastructures all in place. So, yeah. All right. Um, you mentioned like the EU's uh, European um, medical agency that that handles regulatory uh, processes in Europe. When setting up something like this, are people looking at existing, you know, blocks and agencies and how they set up, um, which perhaps could provide a benefit of like, oh, you know, this is how they solved payments to different countries. Or are they looking at it like, okay, maybe there's a problem in the way that they inherently handle payments and we should we should design it ourselves in that something that fits and you know fits us and suits our setup. Um, what sort of like when it comes down to to setting up this sort of venture, how much looking is there at existing systems uh, versus how much are people designing their own? And what is their philosophy behind that? Like, is it good to be like let's maybe not look at Europe because you know historically that's not always been a great idea um, versus okay, we're stuck with the problem and someone else has perhaps solved it. Like, what's the balance with that? Yeah, so with the African Medicines Agency, they were quite clear that they, they're going to be using um, the lessons from Europe to, to set it up. So it was really being modeled on the EMA type of setup. Um, but even in that space, right, you cannot adopt everything as it is. You... you Take you know the good stuff and what what can work also in your context and what doesn't what's not going to fit quite well in a context you have to tailor that um, to suit your own specific needs and your context and you know the people that you serve yeah so it was modeled around the EMA but but I I I, I doubt that they took everything as it is 
Yeah. Okay. Because you can't, yeah, you can't copy paste. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not gonna, I mean, that's good, right? Like, I, I'm not necessarily always a fan of just, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, especially just looking at uh, discrepancies and, and maybe, you know, certain centric views that uh, might not always apply. So it's nice that people are designing something. Um, yeah, what's, what is it, something, I, you know, I've been questioning you now for like 50, 50 minutes or something. Um, in the time that you spent working in this field and learning about it, and what is something that you just find like totally fascinating that you feel maybe I, but also, you know, the general public doesn't know about it, that you're like, this, this type of thing fascinates me on like, I don't know, a daily basis or the first time I heard it, for example, uh, it's really something you... You just have this like really positive experience with, um, and you feel like maybe more people should know about, even if it's like I guess totally obscure. Um, you know, do you do you have that? You're like, oh, you know, this this part about the industry just you know is, I think is fantastic, and I think is great in this way. You want to share? Yeah, I I just think that the whole concept of harmonization, <laughs> as a whole, is just. Um, yeah, it really fascinates me. And it's one of those things that makes so much sense, you know. Um, so I I got an interest in, in pharmaceutical regulations in undergrad when I was in third year. We had this um, module that's called forensic pharmacy. Um, and, you know, you go into it and you're thinking forensic pharmacy and you're thinking forensics, which is like, <laughs> yeah. um, I pres- you know, everyone thinks like dead people and like CSI title fives, but that's <laughs> sure, not what yeah. for, that's not what that's not what forensic pharmacy is. It's actually looking at pharmaceutical regulations. Um, so the first the first um, lecture that we had was, was basically discussing what, what the importance of pharmaceutical regulations is. And we had the case study of the thalidomide disaster. You probably know about that. Um, what disaster, sir? So thalidomide. I actually don't know. Okay, so um, I think in the 60s, um, there's this product that was being sold called thalidomide. Um, and so it was being sold to pregnant women. Um, and it the, the claim was that it, it would cure uh, morning sickness, right? Um, so a lot of women in Europe especially were taking this product um, to cure the morning sickness and little do they know that it actually would cause birth defects on their babies. So their babies were born without without limbs. Either totally no arms and no legs or like some babies would have arms and no legs or like legs, um, no arms and legs and you know that sort of thing. So they had birth defects. Uh, it's called Focomelia. Um, and then that's when the world really sat up and was like, you know, like, the way that regulation actually works needs to get changed. You cannot sell a product without without um, making sure that it's safe, that it's quality assured, and making sure that it's efficacious. Um, and the World Health Organization also stepped in and started beefing up regulations, and the US FDA and the EMA also just reviewed it. So the way that regulation currently works right now is really based around that period in the 60s. Um, if you just look, Google it, Google sure, thalidomide disaster, you'll see all these pictures of, of it, hey? Um, and so... This this all just makes sense to me. Like, okay, regulation is actually very important. Like, we don't we don't 
see the importance of it that much until something goes wrong. And when things go wrong, they really go wrong. Um, <laughs> That's it's uh, yeah. shocking to me so, that like that happened in the sixties, and you know, yeah, like I hazard to think about. That's like the time when our <laughs> yeah. the time our parents were born. Exactly, they easily could have been born as one of those babies. Yeah. Right, and, you know. Yeah. But even when you go back to like like the nineteen twenties, right? So that's pretty much a mm. hundred years ago, right? And there are just like these, you know, absolutely insane medical practices that were happening, you know, um, lobotomies yeah. and like just ridiculous stuff that feels like a bunch of almost crackpots just had like unfettered access to doing what amounts to basically like guesswork with patients and. It is, like, it is. shocking that that happened, but more so that it had happened so soon in recent... You know, like, we had aeroplanes and the cars and stuff like... Like, it's a very modern yeah. period, and yet people were just having, like, <laughs> just medicines that were some array of chemicals mixed together, practices that were just, like, assumed to work with no backing, and, like, the idea that this mental... Yeah. Like you said, the sixties. Our parents were were being born in this area. My dad was, you know, born in the fifties, right? Like, it is. Yeah. It's just wild that, like, it took up until that. Like now, you don't even question it. Like every, pretty much every product, right, has some authority going going through. Like if it's if it's a plastic car, yeah. like the paint needs to be non poisonous, right? Like you can't swallow little yeah. bits of it in medicines that we take all the time food authority like everything that we eat and, and yet that was just a complete sort of like open free-for-all and that it was so recently like that is just you know harrowing to almost think about yeah um so so that's something that really fascinated me and i got interested in like how how was all of this working you know and how do these regulations then now um come into play um, and so what is interesting with the thalidomide disaster is that obviously clinical um, clinical trials were done um, and, and also they did experiments on animals. And I think they were using rats at the time um, and none, none of this came up. Um, so then it, it then raised um, awareness on the fact that you cannot just, you know, decide that if medicine worked in, in animals, it could also be translated into humans. Once you, when it was used in humans, um these issues came up, you know, and babies were born without limbs. And and thalidomide is, is used now, but it's used for leprosy. Uh, so it was it was also quite interesting that it was repurposed. So what it initially came onto the market as and what is actually used now are two completely different things. Um and then from there I, I then um learned about regulation and then I started learning about what's happening in Africa. Um, in terms of regulatory harmonization. And, and this is really something that's interesting to me because it's very joint, joint harmonization and working together and collaborative procedures are something that's inherently African, you know. It's the spirit of Ubuntu just mm-hmm. coming together and doing something together, um, common good and as a collective. So, yeah, that's definitely something as well that's that um, that I found interesting how how our countries have come together based off of you know historical ties uh, that 
go way back to the 60s and that now in present day Africa came together on something completely different from what they'd actually initially set out to do. Um, but at the same time, it's also quite fascinating to me that we can all agree that medicines and access to medicines is important um, and people need access to good quality, safe and efficacious medical products. Um, and, you know, working together saves time, saves resources, um, is the best way to go forward. Yet we also still have countries not moving quick enough um, to actually set up this agency that would bring bring about um, common good for the, the continent. And beyond that, even in the time of a pandemic um, like now, you still have um, certain countries and certain institutions that are for the keeping of intellectual property rights and laws in place, even though millions of people are dying. So, like, um, all of this is just interesting to to see because we... It really is also juxtaposition because on the one hand, you agree that, you know, people should have access to medicines and this is good. But at the same time, people are, people are also for the idea of, you know, just keep all the property property um, laws in place and all the patent laws in place and just have, you know, Pfizer and a couple of other companies being the producers of vaccines. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, a very funny world we live in. <laughs> I was already, you know, pretty firmly on the copyright, patent, IP laws need a, a stern and serious review. Um, yeah. I remember there was like two sets of lengthenings to, you know, like, the, this is in the case of like media, right? There's like the work of an author is, was extended by, I don't know, 10 years after it's prior deadline and then i remember reading something else a few years later where it got extended once again and i was like come on. this is so clearly a couple companies lobbying for just sort of perpetual rights to just use this thing and it will never enter public domain um and yeah you know i was already kind of like getting along on that bad wagon um and that's just with media which is you know relatively it doesn't really have long-term serious effects for for people and then when it comes to like a vaccine where it's just like yeah we've got the paper and we are not releasing it you know things like the volvo inventing the seatbelt they had this idea and and when they made it they were just like this has to we have to give this to everyone like we can't use this as our patent and advertise and make a shit ton of sales for our cars like this is more important than that but that relies on like the goodwill of whoever happened to be in charge at that time, and you can't rely on the goodwill of whoever's in charge at the, at the right time, right? Um, yeah. And and now I think we've seen some clear like just just places where where that intellectual property law is is maybe have cost people their lives right now, and that's yeah, saddening to see and. Uh, yeah, it feels like it feels like a lot of time people make statements like, "Oh, we all agree that this thing is good," and then something else happens, and then mm-hmm. they're like, "Yeah, but you know, we want this." <laughs> Not thinking like you know, for for your initial position to be true, like it has to hold in another place as well. Uh, and I mean, maybe that's a that's a pretty big fundamental problem that people don't apply their logic across the yeah. board. Yeah. 
but uh, I think it's been fascinating to to talk about this with you, and I think we've covered quite a lot of good points. Um, and we're just dipping into about an hour now. Um, I don't really have anything to do. I mean, I do have dinner to make at some point, but um, you know, if you're wanting to wrap things up, I think that's also good. I think we've touched a lot of interesting stuff. Okay, yeah, so we can we can wrap up. <laughs> if yeah. you don't have any more questions, yeah. <laughs> not not yet to pelt you with. But um, that has been okay. lovely catching up with you and uh, hearing your thoughts on this. And um, yeah, hopefully we can chat again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Josh. I've, I've enjoyed this and um, actually speaking to you, <laughs> not over... <laughs> Not over text. Yeah, oh, it's me. <laughs> Hearing it's your me. voice. What? <laughs> oh, a very long know, time. Like, wasn't ten years? Five, six, seven, something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's been good, man. Uh, hope you have a lovely evening, and uh, catch you later. You too.